Welcome to Not Quite Right. I'm Ed. I'm Amanda. Amanda, I've had the pleasure of seeing the new Brad Pitt movie. Have you Bullet indeed? Train. <laughs> have you indeed? <laughs> have you seen it? I have. I, I think I have because I've seen the previews and that's effectively the entire movie. So I feel like I've seen it, yes. So I saw the preview. I think you showed me the preview. You like sent me the link to the preview. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I actually watched the movie is because I just couldn't. Because he's dreamy. <laughs> because he's, he's so dreamy. I couldn't I couldn't believe that he would be in a movie that was that bad, like Brad Pitt. I know. Because I, I, I'm, you know, I've told you before, I like him as an actor. He's, he's yeah. usually in a lot of great movies. He's talented. I, he, I mean, I think that's a fair. He's talented and he tends to choose good movies. Like, yes. you know, you can list five or ten movies he's been in that are pretty good movies mm. um, by good, good directors. And I thought, well, and he, obviously he's not like poor or anything where he needs to. <laughs> he's the opposite of poor. Yeah, he's, you, you would expect he's got some money unless he's made some really terrible decisions. So just thinking, well, that preview looks really awful. The movie yeah. must, it must just be a bad preview. I'm just going to watch the movie. Mm. And it was a, an awful movie. Well, I mean, but I'm the same as you. I watched the preview and I'm thinking, okay, there's, there's not a single redeemable feature here that makes me think this is going to be a good movie and yet i i cannot believe that brad pitt would do a movie that is this bad so so what i mean apart from the obvious what what made it bad so look i'm not really sure who the audience for this is because it's aimed intellectually at 10 year old boys (laughs) yet it is really violent and people are constantly like getting i don't know decapitated and and you know it was very violent very bloody very gory but everything about it it's so stylized in that way where like you've got these groups like the japanese gangsters and they're all wearing sunglasses and they walk around really cool with swords so like it's just completely unbelievable it's completely cliche which i love i love a well, bit of cliche in it can be it can be done in like this in this knowing way in this tongue in cheek way but it was just done in this like serious and and everything about it just seemed to rip off 10 other movies. It yeah. was just the same thing done again. It was like, oh, that's like a kind of Tarantino style, but you just you suck can't everything you out can't of it. imitate Tarantino. <laughs> like there's just no point even yeah. trying. And and the the dialogue was terrible. You know, when I say it's intellectually aimed at, aimed at 10-year-old boys, it's because everything is is explained. Everything everything that happened, like someone is revealed to be the bad guy yeah. that you thought was the good guy. Yeah. And then some character would say, oh, so he's the bad guy. Oh, God. You know, like to the point where you cannot let anything go unexplained. Yes, but that's just, I don't I don't mean to get racist right off the bat here, but <laughs> <laughs> that is the American way, is it not, to over-explain. I mean, I, that's certainly my... It's, it's the way, it's the way of, of bad movies. There are good movies that, that, that kind of maybe give the viewer a little bit of credit. With, they've explained it visually. Yes. They don't also have to yes. like, say it. Yes. But the, the thing is with, with Brad Pitt, his character, he, he plays like a kind of a stoner guy. Okay. In it. Um, and I think, I, I wonder how much of it was his choice and how much of it was um, was the script. But he manages to deliver some of these really stupid lines <laughs> just because he plays that kind of persona. Right. So I th- I'll give him credit as an actor being like, well, I've got this script that's obviously really 
infantile and and, and, he's, <laughs> and he's like, so I've got to say, so that's the bad guy. And, and he delivers it in a way that he's like, so that's the bad guy. Cause like I'm a stoner and, yeah. and that's kind of. Do, and when you say he delivers it, are we saying he pulls it off or not? Look, yeah, I mean, he, he does a okay job, but he's, it's just not good. It's not good. Yeah. And look, the whole plot, it's just one of those plots where every single thing happens. Like there's a, there's a million twists people change sides and then there's a twist and someone dies like every every five seconds because otherwise you'd get bored like yeah, if something because nothing's actually completely happening. if the whole thing didn't completely change every five seconds um but every single kind of twist is wildly implausible and really stupid and by the end of it they compound on each other where you're just like what the fuck is going yeah. on like in this plot at the end of it you're like okay so he's on the train because he's trying to get some money to these guys but the woman there wants to kill that guy who actually turns out to be her dad. Wait, but hang on, hang on. Weren't, aren't you a fan of Tenet? Yeah, but no, no, no. no that's a like, different story. Uh, that's a completely different story. Is it though? No, I, I is like it that. though? No, that's a completely different story. I don't know. Tenet didn't explain anything. This no. is like the opposite movie. Like, this is the- <laughs> yeah, right. No, you're right. It's the exact opposite. Um, I mean, I don't know what you were expecting going in there. I feel like you should have probably had some sort of inkling that this might be the outcome. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I did. I just, I just kind of refused to believe that. Yeah. Like, like, has he just given? Like, up, he's just fallen. He's just given up on life. From grace. He's just like, well, I've done my movies. Yeah. And now I'm just gonna do whatever I want. Just gonna roll well, with maybe, it, like whatever happens. I mean, you know, maybe it's a case of like he wants to be near his family, or he wants to, you know, like different priorities. I mean. He, he probably has a 10-year-old kid at this point who he's making the movie for now. I don't know. Like, I guess, or, or like, honestly, they probably just paid him an absolute shit ton of money because yeah. they knew that no one would watch it unless Brad Pitt was in it. And so they had to really just throw their entire budget into him and that's it. Yeah, look, uh, some people liked it. Uh, a friend of mine, I, I messaged, I've got a group chat and, um, and he was like, yeah, I liked it. And... A lot of movies are that way. Like I have not seen any of the Marvel movies or any no, of the superhero not movies. No, not for many years. But it's exactly the same kind of. Yeah. It's what it's what my friend Pat likes to call, she calls it um, chewing gum for the eyeballs. Yeah. Yeah. So um, oh, what's the name of the movie with the bagel, the everything bagel? Yeah, everything everywhere. Yeah, yeah, once. yeah. I mean, my feeling coming out of that movie, like I, I was absolutely glued to my seat in mm. that movie. I thought that was amazing. That's the best movie I've seen in quite a long time. And I know you don't share that opinion, but I think what I feel is different about that to what you're describing here is like in the, you feel like the writer has just gone nuts. Like they just yeah. did what they wanted. They just had so much fun yeah, and no holds barred. Like, I don't care if this is going to be stupid. I don't care if it's not going to make sense. I'm writing what I think's hilarious. I'm writing what I think's clever or what I think's cool, what I want to see happen on screen, like these crazy fight scenes and all this sort of really just random stuff going on just because you know the person writing it is just giggling to themselves, like imagining this epic scene. And I feel like it might be the same thing with Bullet Train. Like you've just got someone, and I'm going to hazard a guess that it's a a bunch of dudes writing this film um, and just having fun with it and just being like, oh, wouldn't it be hilarious if, and pissing themselves about the line, oh, so he's the bad guy. They were pissing themselves when they wrote that. They were having the time of their lives and they were probably high. And if you were high when you were watching it, maybe you would also find it funny. I don't know. 
you definitely, but you know, you could argue that if you have to be like <laughs> off your face to enjoy something, it's probably not the best. Um, There's a lot of demographics we need to serve in true. the community. I, I, I feel this particular demographic is probably overserved. But look, <laughs> I, I, I didn't love that uh, every everything everywhere all at once movie for a lot of reasons, but. It's not even a comparison. Like no. that's basically Citizen Kane compared to Bullet oh. Train. It's you it's know. better than don't listen. Now you got me started on Citizen Kane, which I hate. <laughs> okay, <laughs> didn't even have Brad Pitt in it. I mean, it did not. <laughs> it did not. It's a shame. Well, don't don't give them ideas. They'll yeah. do a reboot. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Citizen Train. <laughs> well, I've just finished reading your book. The old man in the sea. Thanks oh, yeah. for the thanks for the loan. Nice quick one to fill mm-hmm. out my forty before forty book challenge. Have you read it? You haven't read it for a while. I or? read it. It was, it was like okay. twenty a while years ago. ago or something like that. Well, how old am I? Twenty five years, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to refresh your memory, mm. what it's about is it's about an old man mm-hmm. and the sea and the sea. <laughs> um, I believe there was a fish. There was a fish involved. <laughs> it's it's funny because again, if we're talking oversold, right? Like. It's Hemingway, so you just think, okay, this is going to be literary genius. Yeah. Um, and even just the, uh, the jacket on the book that you loaned me, you mm. know, the the comments are things like, it's it's perfect, you couldn't change a single word or a single sentence, every single word needs to be there, this kind of thing, like yeah. that it's just actually perfect. And so you go into a book with that kind of claim and you think, all right, first, well, I get, you know, I've got my guard up when I see mm. stuff like that. I'm like, well, can I? about this, but you think it's Hemingway, all right, okay, I believe it. Um, and I read it and I read it in a single night because yep. I couldn't sleep and I was just reading and reading. It was that. So you're saying it's unputdownable? Well, no, I think I just couldn't sleep. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call it unputdownable, um, but it it really was perfect. Like it, it yeah. really was. Yeah. And and I don't know how it was because it's very simple Mm. It, he, it's a man who goes fishing. Like that's the premise basically. Um, and there's it's the dialogue, like he's talking to himself. He's on his own on a boat the yeah. vast majority of the time when almost nothing is happening. Like anyone who's ever been fishing would know the fishing trip is mostly just waiting around and that's what the book was like. Yeah. But, but when they said that, you know, there wasn't a single word that you could change to make it better, I think that's true and I don't know how you can do that. It's very short. Yeah. And he really did just convey this whole world and yet just such a brief snippet. And I, I do think that's very impressive. I think he gave a good sense of place, good sense of character. Mm. I didn't need to describe the character at all. Like he just presented with the situation. And, yeah, I was I was impressed. And I guess, like, I don't know, it feels like overselling it because it really is just a very su- sweet sort of simple story. Uh, you know, it's certainly no bullet train. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot going on. I, th- I think if I if I remember correctly, the, the story behind it, he it was kind of late in his career, okay. and yes, it, it, published... it immediately preceded his Nobel. Yeah, it was it was published in a magazine like the New Yorker, okay. I think maybe or, or another literary magazine. That makes sense. So it wasn't published as a as serial. A, uh, no, I think it was published in a single edition. Okay, but, but I could be wrong about this. this. Is just from memory. And that really kind of clinched his Nobel Prize. It was a kind of a success based off that. And it is a really sh- like it's short. It's mm. not. It's longer than a short story. It's like it's, it's a novella, it's a novella right? Yeah. And I think you could say a similar thing about the old man in the sea and maybe Hemingway's, as with Citizen Kane, being that you picking up Hemingway now and reading 
it's hard to really get why it's so good mm. uh, without comparing it to the other writing of the time and, and seeing how he really simplified and stripped everything back mm. and really kind of set that tone like, you know, no adverbs and only say, um, you know, show, don't tell. That, that kind of stuff comes from him, maybe not directly the word-wise coming mm. from him, but definitely that was that was him who who reduced writing to its kind of core. It's just saying exactly what's happening, not trying to um, get elaborate about it, just telling that direct story. But I disagree with you. You're saying you have to look back at it now with reference to like what it was at the time and how big it was at the time. I disagree. I think you can look at it now and still see how it's the bones of something beautiful. Like, you know, you know me, I have been educating myself about how to write for the past 10 years heavily and then obviously my entire life before that and I overthink things to the extreme and so it's absolutely amazing to read something like this but I don't I don't think you could ever imitate it yeah I don't think you could ever imitate it he's just got this complete perfect knack for just choosing words and yeah and making just a like just a very simple sentence sing but yeah. they all work together. I don't think any – if you picked out any single sentence, there's probably not many that you would call a beautiful sentence on its own. Yeah. But the way they build on top of each other, the way, you know, things are called back later um, and just the way he develops character just through dialogue, I think, you know, if you think of his some of his short stories as well that are like pure dialogue yep. and how he can just convey this whole – life story almost in just these brief snippets. And I, I do think that it's not just about the time. I think it's something that we could all learn from now. You know, we do overthink things and we do, you know, there's always this push now in writing, like there's got to be more conflict, more drama, mm. you know, everything's got to be high stakes. If you think of every Netflix show, like someone's getting their head chopped off in the first, you know, scene um, because yeah. that's the only way you're going to get viewers to sit and be hooked. Um and I don't know that you do need to do that. I, f- I feel like there's really something to be said for just stripping it back and just making it real. Today, we're talking about the writing advice, write what you know. Yeah, it's one of those, I feel I'm going to, it gets bandied about. It does get bandied about. It doesn't just get offered as advice. It's like we've accepted it as truth without really interrogating it. And I know that, I mean, we were talking about Hemingway before, you know, it gets attributed to him that this was his advice. It wasn't. He never said that, at least as I don't know anywhere that it's been recorded that he said that. But you can attribute it to many, many writers now. A lot of writers are perpetuating that. So, Mm. you know, Stephen King's talked about this. All the top writers have sort of touched on this. But usually, you know, with the modern writers, they'll give it the twist of like what you know is really what you feel as a person, what you perceive in the world. So it's not really about writing about what your cognitive, you know, knowledge mm. is. Mm. It's about writing about from your perspective, your view of the world and what you see and what you perceive, which is, I think, a cop-out because I don't think that's the same advice at all. Yeah. That's a completely different point to write about what what you feel, to be truthful in your writing. I think that's what they're saying. Be truthful, be honest, be raw. But write what you know is a different thing. That's, I mean, and maybe we don't need to take it literally, but even if we don't take it literally, it's still implying that you need to write about, you you know, your personal experience in some way. Yeah. And I think, I think the word no is the wrong word for that sentence. Like it's, it's just not, it doesn't really convey 
the the idea that I think that he's trying to get across. In what idea do you think? I mean, this is a thing. We don't even know who supposedly no. said it. So what is it trying to get across? I yeah. mean. So, so, I mean, to take right what you know literally is to say, well, write what your personal experience is or write things that you have knowledge about, things that you, like maybe your hobbies or your work or your the way that you were brought up. You know, there's a kind of implied only in there, like yes. only write what yes. you know instead of writing about other people's experience that you may not have direct contact with. I think certainly write what you know if we're talking about your life experiences and perhaps, yeah, like the industry you work in, your life experience, that your your family, your your individual place in the world. I think that's good advice. I think it's really good to get into deeply something that you know a little bit about. And I think that is very resonant when people do that. So, and it doesn't need to be much. I mean, we do a lot of flash fiction writing together and you read other people's flash fiction. And sometimes it's just a sentence or a phrase or a little, a a turn of phrase that people use. And you just think, wow, that person knows all about that industry or that person knows all about that place that they've written about. And they can convey so much in such a short time because they know it deeply and they know what what the essence of it is and so they're bringing that essence to their writing and I think for sure that can be amazing when people know something so deeply that they can communicate about it very clearly and very emotively which someone coming at it from the outside could research all they want and may get to a point where they're still communicating well about this thing but it, there's that intimacy is not there. Yeah, and there are a lot of examples of writing where people have been very successful writing about their own very personal experience. Yes. There is the the Napolitan series by Elena Ferrante, which is very semi-autobiographical. She's literally writing about her life in a fictionalised setting. And mm-hmm. I think that works, but that's not really what I think people are talking about because it's a very narrow interpretation. And, and it and sort of implies that what you know is interesting enough to write about too. I mean, if you've got an interesting life and I'm thinking Frank McCourt and Angela's Ashes, like if you're going to write something like that, then please bring that to the world because Mm. that's a voice that is important. That's a voice that's just going to echo through time. Um, But if you're me and you've lived a a sheltered suburban life um, Mm. and, and, there's some pretty fascinating novels about sheltered suburban lives. So um, I'm not discounting that either, but, and I guess, you know, who's to say what's valuable and what's not, but I guess most writers who balk at this advice would be the kind of writers who say, well, my life's not that exciting. Like, you know, I want to imagine dragons and castles because that's better than what I've got on offer at home. I think I read a quote by Ursula Le Guin, which was write what you know, but what you know might be dragons. Yes. Um, so if I say like, is this, is it good advice? Like what's it trying to actually tell you? I think for a, a writer who's, who's starting out and who has expectations about what novels should be about or what that, what mm. writing should be about, maybe this is probably much more relevant 30 years ago when I think novels were, writing was a lot more homogenous mm-hmm. and kind of there w- weren't so many genres and so much different kind of experiences out there where you might be a writer and thinking, well, I've read novels and they're all kind of like a certain way, mm. right? And and, and you you're m- trying to imitate, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, Don't you, might, you might feel compelled, compelled to imitate in a way, not necessarily the voice or anything, but but kind of this, the, style. the kind of novel or, or, or something about the structure or something about the experience that may not be your own or might may not kind of motivate or resonate you, with you. And what, what it's saying is write what you 
you know, feel that you need to write, like find the thing within you that, that wants to come out. Um, and whether that's your experience personally or not, maybe it's, you know, maybe you're writing about dragons because that's what you think about all the time. You know, maybe you're writing about someone else's experience because you find it really interesting and compelling and you've researched it and you've, Mm. you you understand it and you really want to write about it. I think that's all kind of within the realm of what that advice is trying to say. I don't know. I disagree. I think what we're saying is write what you know with all these caveats, which is what I'm saying modern authors do now. They all say it. They all say, write what you know, but what you know actually means what you feel. It's like, well, no, that's not actually true. Okay, that's a different piece of advice and it's better advice in my opinion, Uh, my unexpert opinion or inexpert opinion. Uh, But I would think that this advice, if we're taking write what you know at face value, just reflecting on what you said just then, I think what I picked up I think it's really good advice for someone who's new and I think that's Mm. all it is. I think it's good advice to not imitate and I think that's where its value lies. So if you're coming at the writing game and you've got this view of what writing should be and you've got these lofty goals and you – it's all about the shoulds. Do you know what I mean? Like you're coming at it with the shoulds. This is what it should be. This is what I imagine it's going to be as opposed to writing what's in you Um, You're writing what you think you should be writing. And I think if the advice could be useful to someone in that position to say, forget all that crap, forget all what you've, what you've read, like it's all in there as background for you, but now write your story. When you're starting out, I think maybe taking that literally isn't the worst idea in the world. But if you're into fantasy and what have you, that is still what you know, because it's probably what you've read your whole life. Um, So if you've read all about dragons your whole life, write about dragons. If that's what you're passionate about, don't feel like you have to go and write some literary novel. Don't feel like you have to go mimic Hemingway because that's the only way you will be valid as an author. You have to write your story. You have to put your voice out there and your voice is what you know. Put that on the page instead of trying to put someone else's stuff. I think that's the the crux of it is is that just that affirmation that writing is about self-expression and you need to bring yourself to the writing process. Whatever that and, means. Yeah, so you express yourself. And that's why the word no is not the right word like yes. because it has the implication that it's knowledge that that is that is in your head that is experience that you've lived or or some area of expertise that you have and that's really not what what it's saying and, and you know again we don't know who said it. So Well, uh, I'll tell you what Hemingway said, right? I've got it here. So a lot of people attribute the quote right what you know to Hemingway. Um, And as I said earlier, he didn't actually, as far as I know, actually say that. So the quote that's often associated with this claim is from The Art of the Short Story, which was written as a sort of a a speech, like an address to um, graduating students. And he said, you throw it all away and invent from what you know. I should have said that sooner. That's all there is to writing. So he actually never said write what you know. He said you invent from what you know. And this is in the context of talking about a character that he wrote who was a massive bitch <laughs> and he was basically saying, so I knew this bitch yeah. and I wrote this character and it's all about her and that's where I got my inspiration and it's not her but it is her. And then I wrote about this other guy and that's yeah. about this other guy that I know. Yeah. And then there's this other guy and he's my mate so I wrote him completely honestly and that's him yeah. um, and I just changed his name because I didn't want to get him in trouble. So basically that's what if we're attributing it to Hemingway, that's what he was saying is like, Invent from what you know. So mm. have it come from your experience, but it's still your story to tell. It's still your invention. 
um, it's not like you're just reporting facts uh, from real life. Yeah. And look, I really like that quote because he's talking about something really important about writing that is not maybe obvious. Mm. I think it's obvious to people who are natural writers, Mm -hmm. um, but may not be obvious to to kind of someone who's aspiring and wants to to write because you might approach writing as as like, okay, I want to write a novel. What do I write about? I need a plot. Mm. I need a subject. I need blah, blah, blah. Guilty. What what (laughs) What he's saying is like you've got enough experience that, you know, once you've got maybe a framework, you don't need to invent everything out of of nothing. Mm. You don't have to come up with everything from scratch. And I guess that circles right back to what Stephen King would say or what many contemporary authors would say about writing what you feel or writing what you perceive. You're taking little snippets of real life and you're turning them into something, you're weaving them into something bigger and different, something imaginary, but that feels really real because it's come from a truth, a truth that you you know. I I think you touched on something else that's, I guess, a little offshoot of this, which is, What about when we're talking about in 2022, writing about a group of people or writing about an experience that isn't your lived experience? In 2022, we're very much about representing all parts of the world, all communities, and we want to see more of it. But what does that mean for an author? You know, it's kind of like walking on eggshells at some, sometimes of, I want to do this, but do I have the right, you know, it's not what I know. Um, do I have the right? And that's, I think, a tricky question for people now yeah, too. Yeah, I've got that um, Bo Burnham song, Problematic, <laughs> in my head right now. <laughs> he put it very well. He I mean, it, it's a real problem. Like it it can feel tokenistic. I, I, yeah. And, you know, I write in middle grade and I read in middle grade and there's a lot of what I perceive to be tokenistic writing in that field where we're just trying to tick Boxes yeah. of, and I know that's not the author's intention, so I don't want to be unfair there. I think the authors come at it absolutely with the intention of being representative, the intention of being real, because we're in a diverse community. Let's show everybody here. And, of mm. course, you, you'd be worse off if you were just showing your own individual experience with no diversity whatsoever. But to what ex- I guess it's hard when, apart from, being a woman, I guess if you count that sometimes as being disadvantaged, um, that I don't have an experience myself that would qualify me to write for a marginalised group. Yeah. Look, I, I think my, my opinion is if if you're treating writing as pure art, mm. right, taking that, that view, then I would say, you know, you should be writing a about what you want to write, regardless yeah. of what that means, and regardless of whether you, you know, if you want to write about a group that that is that you're not part of, um, and that fits with what you what your your goals are, your artistic goals, then you should do that. But there are also realities, and it really depends on what genre you're working within, and it really depends, you know, who who your audience is, and and are you trying to be a mainstream writer? Are you trying to be like a children's author? Mm. Um, because yes. there are expectations. <laughs> <laughs> There are expectations, and and maybe within the the area that you're working with them within, um, the expectation is representation and diversity yeah. and all that kind. of I thing. I think there is. I think in, you know, commercial fiction certainly, and and in middle grade, it's not like a necessary feature, but certainly it's come to the fore that 
representation is important. I'm talking about disability representation, obviously cultural representation, gender and sexuality representation are all jumping to the the fore um, and there's a lot more books being published with those as key themes as well and not just background elements, which I think is amazing because I think we've got some catching up to do in terms of filling the bookshelves with representative stories. And I guess it's it's also obviously amazing that we are giving more opportunities to d- diverse groups who may not have had a voice before for whatever reason, um, some form of disadvantage that may have prevented them from having a voice. Now they have a voice, which is amazing. Um, but we're probably talking about an industry which is still overrepresented by straight white people and how do yeah and you don't want to just write about straight white people um and so if we go back to the invent from what you know i would feel really insincere writing about a character who's with with a cultural background that i had no experience of i have no friends with that background i've never been to that country I don't know anything about it. However, you know, I have friends um, with different cultural backgrounds who've grown up in other countries or different religions to to my own, and I would feel more comfortable inventing a character with a similar background to these friends of mine um, because I have some knowledge of that. I, it's what I know. I guess if we're talking write what you know or invent from what you know. I would feel more comfortable inventing from from that space. Yeah. I think like to give an example, if, if you're writing, say I'm writing a, a story and I think, okay, I've got a great idea for a character and um, that character is going to be trans and mm-hmm. that's going to be meaningful because of the, it fits into the kind of story I want to tell. It fits into the the plot that I want to um, discuss and the, the themes I want to go into. That's great. But do you then write a character in that is, is something that you wouldn't necessarily want to kind Just of- to like- Tick the to be yeah, tokenistic. That, that's exactly tokenism. <laughs> so, so like, but the output might also be good for the people who you're representing. Well, so. this is the thing. I mean, I do believe, I very strongly believe that representation is actually super important. And we both have two daughters mm-hmm. each. And when you think of little girls, like you want them to feel represented in the world. And I just, I can really see how much it means. And, and okay, if we're just going pure like cliche for my children here. I've got one with straight brown hair and I've got one with curly blonde hair. Mm-hmm. And whenever they see two characters together yeah. and one's a brunette, yeah. one's a blonde, like that's them. Yeah. And and they they each take on that role. And I mean if even if we go to Bluey, you yeah. know, when Bluey came out, the two Bluey dogs were my daughter's ages and so they each adopted yeah. those roles. And Elsa and Anna, another classic, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I just feel like that's so nice for them. It's yeah. so nice for them to be able to identify with characters and to take on those really beautiful, like the strengths and the magical powers in some cases and just feel associated with it. And so that that comes around to The Little Mermaid, mm-hmm. which are you familiar with the new Little Mermaid? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, obviously there's outrage, like, you know, people are outrage about everything, clutching yeah. their pearls left, right and centre about the choice of the lead role in, in The Little Mermaid. But I just think how wonderful, like that's yeah. so wonderful and it's so important to so many people. Um, I wouldn't be the one to write, you know, to write that story, to cast that person, but I'm so glad that that's happened. Yeah. I think it's really important for kids' media. Yes. Definitely. And that's see, that's my world, I guess. And yeah. th- the truth is in middle grade, in the type of middle grade that I like to write, 
um, which is sort of these sort of suburban, you know, kids' books, just um, little local adventure kind of style. There is a lot of tokenism and I'm not Mm. talking cultural tokenism. It's everything. Like literally every book in the genre I like to write, there's always a little girl who loves to bake cupcakes. Yeah. Without exception, there's one who likes to bake cupcakes. There's the STEM girl, right? She's either like a computer programmer or she's good at maths or she's, you know, um, a little budding scientist mm-hmm. of some form. That's that's a tick. And then we've got the environmental girl, you know, the environment eco-warrior. And then we've got like the bossy boots one. Yeah. You know, and this goes back to Babysitter's Club days mm-hmm. of like you've got, to, you've got to be the arty one or you've got to be the shy one or you've got to be the bossy one or you've got yeah. to be the cool one and that's it. And but I remember identifying with these characters as a child and, you know, you'd pick the one you were and for some reason that felt really important at the time. Yeah. You know, which Spice Girl are you? Like, you know, um, to just sort of identify and, and I guess explore who you are through who these characters are. And I certainly think in middle grade that that's a huge feature that we've got these real like just I don't know what you would call them, like cliche is not the word I'm looking for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. These archetypal characters and I don't know, is that the same thing? I don't know. That's part of it. And, but then being so important for, for kids and um, looking at kind of more adult media, I don't know if adult media is the right (laughs) word. You like to look at more adult media? (laughs) I don't know what the the word for that is. Um, Is it the same kind of issue? Like is, do you have the same need for representation in books that are for I guess there's an expectation parents. for adults in mm. adult media yeah. um, that you would dive deeper into who the characters are and probably, you know, it's a little bit more mm. surface level in middle grade just purely because you don't have the time and the yeah. words to, to go as deep as you would. So is it that the deeper you go into a character, the more you need to sort of know what you're talking about. You know, you can have a middle grade character who's got family and who's got, you know, something they do every weekend because of their cultural background. Mm. And that's sort of as far as you need to go with it. They might eat certain foods. They might have certain words or practices that feel unique and special to that yeah. group. Um, but if you, if we're talking adult novels, like we're talking like potentially delving into someone's sexuality and, uh, and how that impacts like every aspect of their lives. And I think that's very different to sort of just having these features of a culture, which is much more just pure representation and, as we've indicated, important. And I guess you're probably more likely to piss off adult readers as well because I guess there's this sense that you're stepping on someone's toes. Yeah. I think as long as you're respectful, as long as you take the effort to try and understand Mm. um, someone else's position... I don't think you can really be criticised for writing. You definitely can, you can. be. Oh, yeah. But I don't think you can legitimately <laughs> criti- be criticised for, for writing something that's not your personal experience. Oh, well, And art is, you have to be brave. You know, if yeah. you really want to do it, you have to be brave. You have to be willing to risk the criticism because it's going to come, whether it's about that or something else. And I think you can maybe usually tell that whether someone's being disingenuous or whether they just genuinely wanted to write a character for whatever reason. Our last segment is called Get Wrecked. This is where we subject each other to books, media, anything that I like or that you like, uh, and then we make each other endure it is basically the premise behind this. uh. So what have you got for me? Well, just thinking about the Babysitter's Club. Mm Mm-hmm. Like which which babysitters club member are you? Like I'm a Christie through and through. 
so obviously I've read every single babysitter. Yeah, obviously. I, 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 have, I don't know any of them. I don't know who they are. All right, you're about to find out. So yeah. I'm going to recommend to you that you read Christy's Big Idea. Oh, sorry, is it Christy's Great Idea? Oh, my God. It's been too long. Christy's, Christy's Great, Great Idea, idea. right? By Anne M. Martin, which is the first book in a, about 500 book series, right? Can I make a prediction? Ooh. Her great idea is to start a babysitter's club. I'm not going to tell you one way or the other whether your prediction is correct. Um, you're just going to have to read it and find out with great anticipation. Now, listen, this is this is a multi-parter, though, because mm-hmm. that's too easy. Yep. Come on. That's like that's a novella. Yep. Um, I want you to also watch the original TV, made-for-TV episode of Christie's Great Idea. Mm-hmm. And then I want to want you to watch the Netflix modern take on Christie's Great Idea. Okay. So all one right. book and two episodes. One book and two episodes, all the same story. Sounds good. I'm excited. Okay. Well, that's the show then for this week. Uh, Amanda, how can people reach us if they if they want to give us feedback or ask oh God, us questions? God, please don't give us feedback unless it's wonderful feedback. Um, so you can email us at notquiterightpodcast at gmail.com. And you can catch us on Instagram at Not Quite Right Podcast or on Twitter at NQW Podcast. And if you've, if you've got any negative feedback, um, you can just file that straight in the bin. <laughs> so we, we, we're not going to read I'm very sensitive. Feedback, so don't even bother. All right. Well, well, I've had a great time. This has been fun. And um, we'll do it again in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Can't All wait. right. And until next time, right on. Right on. <laughs> Thank you.